Okay, um, are we all here? Can everybody see? Well, I guess first and foremost, uh, thank you all for coming tonight. I realize that we probably all have uh, busy lives, and I really appreciate that uh, you're taking your time and you're spending it with me. Uh, but I can understand why you would do so, because it just happens to be that I am speaking in one of the most beautiful museums in the entire United States and the entire world. And I just love coming to this building to look at what they have there, uh, have here. And of course, I love the building itself, too. Uh, anyways, I'm here to talk to you tonight about uh, Zinkala Shah. Um, this is a, a photograph. If any of you want to come in closer, uh, feel welcome to do so. And uh, Zinkala Shah was born in 1876 in the southeastern corner of South Dakota on the Yankton Sioux Reservation. Uh, 1876 is a pretty significant year in Sioux history. Does anybody know why? It's important in American history because it's the American centennial, but why is it important in Sioux history? Very important event occurred. What was that? Yeah, exactly. The Battle of the Little Bighorn, Custer's famous or infamous last stand, occurred on June 25th of 1876. But anyways, uh, Zinkala Shah was born to uh, uh, to a, a Dakota Sioux mother and a white father, and her name at birth was uh, Gertrude Simmons. Um, Zinkala Shah is a name that she took for herself later on in life, and it means a red bird. Um, Zinkala Shah died in 1938, at age 61, in Washington, D.C. Um, and might you guess where she's buried? Arlington Cemetery, right across the river. She'd actually married a, a man who was a World War I veteran, and so that's why she's interred there. And uh, um, she led a, a remarkably amazing life. And I think her journey from uh, Yankton Reservation in South Dakota to the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., was, was just absolutely amazing. It, it, it took her across space. It took her across t- time. She crossed gender lines. She crossed cultures and cosmology. She went from the rural to the urban. And in the words of one of her uh, fairly famous contemporaries, her journey might be called a journey from the deep woods to civilization. Now, I think that her journey must have been excruciatingly painful, at least psychologically, and I like to think about this in terms of looking at the change that she went through. She went through amazing changes. She was a pioneer in many ways, she, and she had her own frontiers that she had to cross and experience and explore. And we often associate uh, uh, the, the idea of a pioneer or uh, the idea of the frontier with something kind of majestic and romantic and really inspiring, but it was tough, tough, tough stuff too. And um, actually, while we're up here, I should point out that we're in this Faces of the Frontier exhibit, and a lot of these places went west, a lot of these individuals went west to have their frontier experience, or had their, uh, uh, or maybe the west for them was their frontier, but for Zinkala Shah, it was maybe the other way around. She had her frontiering experience as she came east. Uh, her frontiering movement was eastwards. But anyways, um, she, uh, 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 excuse me for just one sec, there was actually a little segue that I, that I missed, but anyways, um, I, in making this transition, she dealt with a lot of conflicts. Um, she was born on the Sioux Reservation. She felt very connected to Sioux culture. Yet at the same time, she spent much of her life in Anglo culture. She loved Sioux traditions, 
but she couldn't help but be drawn to the, uh, the types of literature, art, music, and learning that was found in, white, um, in Anglo-America. She also uh, felt a deep affection and an attachment to her mother. She often felt guilt when she was away from her mother. However, whenever she went back to visit her mother, Sankala Shah found that she could not, couldn't quite relate. She didn't think that her mother ever uh, really understood her the way that she wanted to. And, um, and also, she felt um, kind of a resentment towards white society because she saw them as perhaps changing the world of the Lakota Sioux for a, or the Dakota Sioux in ways that maybe weren't quite so good. But at the same time, she was able to experience so much and do some things that maybe for a woman wouldn't have been appropriate in the context of Sioux culture. So, let me talk a little bit about her and give her a, uh, a biographical sketch. Uh, like I said, she was born in 1876 um, on the Yankton Sioux Reservation, and she lived there until she was about eight years old. And at age eight, she had an opportunity to go east to a Quaker boarding school in Indiana. And she says in one of her, one of her uh, essays that she was drawn there by the by the promise or the lure or the temptation of bright red apples. She just thought that was so interesting and she wanted to go and see this for herself. Her brother actually had been there too and she, she wanted to go acquire an education like her brother did. Her mother let her go, albeit reluctantly. And so in, I think, 1884, she goes to, um, I guess it was a, a White's Manual Industrial School, a Quaker school in Indiana. And her experience there wasn't all that good. She, um, uh, I guess she missed, uh, missed her mother, felt guilty about being away. And she also didn't like the way a lot of the teachers at the school didn't really seem to respect or value or appreciate traditional Lakota culture. So after about three years, she went back home and she returned to her mother on the uh, Yankton Reservation. However, uh, after going back, she felt like she didn't quite belong. It was a difficult place for her to be. Her mother didn't understand her. And I have here a, a quote about just that. She said, My mother had never gone inside a schoolhouse, so she was not capable of comforting a daughter who could read or write. Even nature seemed to have no place for me. I was neither a wee girl nor a tall one, neither a wild Indian nor a tame one. And this, to me, kind of exemplifies a theme throughout her life. It's... Um, I, it's this difficulty in relating to the two worlds to which she might belong, the traditional Sioux world and the world of Anglo-America. And when scholars study, uh, they'll sometimes call it the mixed blood or the mixed race Indian experience, individuals are often characterized in maybe one of two ways. One way we might call the cultural broker way. Here you have an individual who is maybe born into one culture but grows up or has significant experience with another culture, and this person can move back and forth comfortably between the two cultures, seems to fit in in both places, seems to find meaning in both places, and perhaps uses this ability to go back and forth between the two to be a mediator or to use it to, um, for some other advantage. And there's another paradigm, we might call it the alienation paradigm, where someone understands one culture, understands a second culture, but they don't feel like they really belong in either one, and they feel conflicted throughout time. And I really think that Gertrude Bonin falls into the second uh, category. Um, 
after um, four years in the Yankton Reservation, she decided to return to Indiana. She went back to um, that Quaker uh, boarding school, and she finished up, and she, she actually did quite well there. She afterwards decided to attend Earlham College in Indiana, which is a, kind of a small liberal arts college. There she excelled. She had a very good experience. Uh, she developed her skills as a first-rate orator. Uh, she also um, uh, developed her skills as a musician and as a writer. After Earlham College, um, she went to um, uh, she became a, a teacher for a short time at a very famous Indian boarding school in Pennsylvania, Carlisle Indian School. And it's about that about this time that this photograph was taken. And um, if you look at the photograph here, she's wearing kind of traditional. Um, uh, American Indian attire. And one of the things that's interesting is that Gertrude Bonin liked to depict herself as a traditional full-blooded Sioux. Now, and, and she would dress in uh, traditional Lakota clothing um, when she made some of her public appearances. And this is at a time when many, many Sioux didn't dress this way. They dressed more, I guess, in the Anglo-American style. And also, um, she presented herself as a full-blooded Sioux. She very seldom spoke of her father. Um, and in some of her writings, she, you know, she does talk about having a non-Indian father, but she really depicts herself as a full-blooded Sioux. And I think this kind of suggests this conflicted, uh, this conflicted identity also. Um, and I think while she was at Carlisle, she actually got to give a speech in front of uh, President McKinley. Pretty amazing. And also at about this time, around 1900, 1901, she began to write, not just for herself or for her friends, but she began to write for publication. And she published in the Atlantic Monthly several articles, and she was even reviewed in Harper's Bazaar. And I kind of um, uh, wasn't sure whether or not I should do this, actually read to you from some of her prose, but because she is perhaps most distinguished as a writer, I would feel like I was uh, letting you down if I didn't read at least a little bit. And we can maybe pick up on some of those themes that I mentioned to you earlier. So anyways, this is from, um, uh, from an essay entitled Impressions of an Indian Childhood. She's always going back, trying to remember what it was like to be a child on the Yankton Reservation. And this chapter is called, uh, or this section is called, My Mother. A wigwam of weather-stained canvas stood at the base of some irregularly ascending hills. A footpath wound its way gently down the sloping land till it reached the broad river bottom, creeping through the long swamp grasses that bent over it on either side. It came out on the edge of the Missouri. Here, morning, noon, and evening, my mother came to draw water from the muddy stream for our household use. Always, when my mother started for the river, I stopped my play to run along with her. She was only of medium height. Often, she was sad and silent at which times her full arched lips were compressed into hard and bitter lines and shadows fell under her black eyes. Then I clung to her hand and begged to know what made the tears fall. Hush, my little daughter must never talk about my tears. And smiling through them, she patted my head and said, Now, let me see how fast you can run today. Whereupon I tore away at my highest possible speed with my long black hair blowing in the breeze. I was a wild little girl of seven, loosely clad in a slip of brown buckskin, light-footed with a pair of soft moccasins on my feet. I was as free as the wind that blew my hair, and no less spirited than a bounding deer. These were my mother's pride, my wild freedom, and my overflowing spirits. She taught me no fear, save that of intruding myself upon others. Having gone many paces ahead, I stopped, panting for breath, 
and laughing with glee at my, um, as my mother watched my every movement. I was not wholly conscious of myself, but I was more keenly alive with the fire within. It was as if I were the activity, and my hands and feet were only experiments for my spirit to work upon. Returning from the river, I tugged beside my mother with my hand upon the bucket I believed I was carrying. One time, on such a return, I remember a bit of conversation I, we had. My grown-up cousin, Sunflower, who was then 17, always went to the river alone for water for her mother. Their wigwams were not far from ours, and I saw her daily going to and from the river. I admired my cousin greatly. So I said, Mother, when I am as tall as my cousin, Sunflower, I will not have to co- you will not have to come for water. I will do it for you. With a strange tremor in her voice, uh, which I could not understand, she answered, if the pale face does not take away from us the river that we drink. Mother, who is this bad pale face, I asked. My little daughter, he is a sham, a sickly sham. The bronze Dakota is the only real man. I find that very interesting. She has this longing to go back to an idyllic childhood. After she, um, uh, after she uh, begins to publish, she um, uh, ends up in uh, Boston at the New England uh, Music Conservatory where she studied music, and she really enjoyed her Boston experience. And there she meets, uh, she meets another uh, highly educated Indian man whose name was Carlos Montezuma. And Carlos Montezuma was from the Southwest. He was a Yavapai Indian, and they became engaged. However, this engagement didn't last too long, and one of the reasons that they called it off was that Carlos Montezuma... Like I said, he was an Indian, but he, he very much wanted for the Indians to assimilate, to become uh, uh, mainstreamed with the rest of America, whereas Zinkala Shah felt some trepidation towards that, and she wanted to preserve some element of Indian culture. And this is a theme that she'll address later in her life, because she goes back to Yankton Reservation, spends some time there, and she finds a man whose name is uh, Raymond Bonin, B-O-N-N-I-N, and um, he, uh, they get married. He gets a job as a government clerk working on the Uinta Indian Reservation in Utah. This is a huge reservation. I mean, it's not as big as Navajo, but it's a huge reservation. She then moves out there, working amongst Indian people. She's a teacher. She teaches them music, and she also writes. She writes a play. She writes an opera. But you know... She's not happy there. She feels cut off. She feels disconnected. She longs for some kind of educated and sophisticated companionship that she had had when she was back in Boston and in in the East. Now, around this time, uh, a very important American Indian organization gets founded. It's 1911, and it's called the Society of American Indians, the SAI, Society of American Indians. And this is a group of Indians from all different tribes. It's a pan-Indian organization. These Indians mostly are very well educated and they decide to come together to try to use their education to try to advocate for Indian interests. And Zinkalasha joined this society. There are about 220, 230 people in there. When she was in there, maybe about 30% of them were women. But Zinkalasha really strives and develops herself. And before long, she's on their advisory board and then she becomes secretary of the organization. And when she becomes secretary, it necessitates a move to Washington, D.C. So she and her husband come to Washington, D.C. and really begin to engage a lot of these issues. And there's a, there's a term that's kind of used um, in lots of different places when you look at American Indian history, and it's called the Indian problem. Do any of you know what the Indian problem is? How do we solve the Indian problem? 
somebody might say. What does that mean? It's a question that's very often posed from a kind of a Euro-American perspective, the Indian problem. And it's very loosely, it's this. Okay, well, once the Indians have been defeated in battle or pushed off their lands and pushed onto a reservation, what comes next? Do you, you let them sit there and just be Indians on their own terms, do whatever they want to do? Uh, do we try to change them or help them out? If so, to what end? Do we try to assimilate them? Do we try to make Christians out of them, etc., etc.? And the Society of American Indians really grappled with this issue. Now that the, um, uh, the reservation period is in effect for Indians all across America, how do you go forward? And uh, some very talented people in this group, but over the course of time, the Society for American Indians fell apart. And there were a couple of things that made it fall apart. One of them was the idea of uh, peyote use. Um, some people in the Society for American Indians thought that peyote use was appropriate in that the Society for American Indians should use their power and their influence to protect, its, to protect the Indians' right to perform the peyote rituals. Uh, surprisingly, even though she's a traditionalist in many ways, Gertrude Bonin says, no, 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 uh, I don't support this at all, and she becomes an adamant opponent to that. And another issue that really tore the society asunder was the issue of how much to assimilate and how fast. There were some people in there, like Carl Montezuma, who, want, who was also in this organization, her former fiancé, who wanted to kind of push forward the envelope pretty quickly, abolish the Bureau of Indian Affairs, because the Bureau of Indian Affairs kept Indians segregated on reservations and confined to poverty. Sankala Shah said, no, I think we need to protect some of the older people, protect that way of life. Indian culture has something beautiful that we need to respect going forward. So anyways... Uh, in 1918, Zinkala Shah will resign from the Society of American Indians uh, because the peyote faction had gained the upper hand and she wanted nothing to do with that. She continued her life here in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist, working for Indian causes. She became friends uh, with John Collier, who would be the Commissioner of Indian Affairs under Franklin D. Roosevelt. She even wrote a book for uh, the Indian Rights Organization, which was kind of a um, uh, a general organization that looked out for the rights of Indians called um, Oklahoma's Poor Rich Indians, which was kind of an expose about some of the greed and corruption that was going on in Oklahoma in the bilking of Indians out of their money that they were getting for, uh, for mineral leases and for land, uh, for land leases. The uh, uh, book was uh, pretty hard-hitting, but it didn't seem to get much traction, and Zinkala Shah felt that she was a failure on that account. She uh, um, continued her work in Washington, D.C., advocating uh, for Indian Affairs. But when John Collier became Commissioner of Indian Affairs under uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, she kind of had an estrangement from him because he was trying to impose a, a new system of government upon Indian people. And even though, in general, John Collier's programs had many good effects, Zinkala Shah opposed them because he didn't solicit as much Indian input as he, uh, as he could have. And then suddenly, and rather unexpectedly, I guess, in 1938, Sankala Shah died. And um, like I said, she's buried over here in Arlington Cemetery, and her husband dies several years later. And one historian wrote that Sankala Shah died uh, a profoundly sad and embittered woman. Uh, she sensed that her life was a failure. She struggled so hard for all of these Indian causes, yet so many Indians seem to be suffering and struggling with a lot of the difficulties that she sought to alleviate. And so I guess in many ways we can understand why she might feel that way. 
But on the other hand, she made some very important contributions that I think, uh, that I hope that she took, uh, took some great satisfaction from. Uh, first and foremost, she was a very accomplished author. Um, she, she published quite a bit. I have here a collection of some of her essays. There's more out there. She wrote a lot of letters, a lot of correspondence too. And, um, uh, and because she wrote about something that was so intensely personal, how do you feel being kind of caught between these two worlds, um, between the uh, uh, traditional world and the modern world? Um, we, as non-Indians, or people who haven't had that experience, can begin to understand it a lot better. And I think that what's really amazing here is that she left us a legacy that documented her experience. So not only were the people who were reading her works in contemporary times or in times contemporary to her able to appreciate it, to understand it, but people subsequent to then have been able to understand it. We can understand it today, and people will be able to appreciate it well into the future. And that, I think, is her greatest legacy. And another thing that I think is interesting, too, and I invite you all to think about this yourselves, but if you are a reformer, a passionate reformer, and you, are, and you devote your life to a cause, how many of these reformers do we think die happy people? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Reverend uh, uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., think about what a great American he was. But at the time he was assassinated, um, he was becoming very disillusioned and very frustrated that he wasn't able to achieve um, civil rights through peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience at the rate at which he wanted to do it. Very frustrating. And I think a lot of reformers, we can look back through history and say, gosh, boy, uh, they didn't achieve anywhere near as much as they wanted to. But how can you, for a single individual or even a small group of individuals, to try to achieve so much? I mean, these are huge societal changes, changing of cultures, changing of hundreds of thousands of people in the way that they think. That's a pretty, pretty high bar, pretty profound problems that she had to deal with. But I think she gave it a great shot. She used her talents to the best of her ability to help out the people that she cared about most. And she did make a difference, and it's something that we can all appreciate today. So anyways, I'll draw my talking to a quick conclusion, but I hope that you have some questions that I can address. Did her mother always stay on the reservation? Very good question. Um, I believe that her mother went on and off and on and off and on and off the reservation. She actually had, um, I think her first husband was, uh, was a Yankton Sioux man, and I believe that she married either two or three other white husbands subsequent to that. And... Um, and I think that um, Gertrude Simmons um, w- was her birth name. Simmons wasn't her father. It was a guy named, I think, uh, like Feltzer or something like that, who was her biological father. But the man that she knew for a little bit of her life uh, was, um, uh, uh, was somebody else. She, she didn't have children Actually, she did have one children. Her name, uh, or his name, was Raymond uh, Ohia which um, means uh, uh, winner or to win uh, in uh, Dakota. And um, uh, she raised him when she, was in, uh, when she was in Utah. That was one of her other jobs, is, is raising, their, raising their one son. She was very brave. Yeah. And, and I, I guess when I said that um, uh, this journey across cultures and cosmologies, when I think about these people, um, these, these individuals who joined the Society of American Indians, for example, people like Gertrude Bonin, I think that that's got to be so difficult for them to make that cultural or cosmological journey, to have to leave your native religion behind, to have 
to leave behind the rhythm of native life, the logic that held it together, um, and its own internal lo uh, logic and wisdom. Because being imposed upon that, that reservation community is a new system of learning, a new system of knowledge, a new system of understanding, a new religion, a new set of understandings about how the, how the world works. And I think that's got to be profoundly disorienting. And not only that, but you are, you are leaving the northern Great Plains and you are traveling not only to Indiana and Utah and Pennsylvania, but you're traveling to Boston and you're traveling to Washington, D.C. And, and that's an awful lot to, uh, to process. I grew up in a very small um, uh, farming town. I had 39 people in my graduating class. And um, actually 41 was a, a visiting student from Germany. Uh, but uh, trust, and, and my town was very traditional. I like to say that it was uh, half Irish, half Polish, all Catholic. But it was, it was uh, my experience, you know, leaving Massachusetts. I lived in Connecticut for a little while, and then I went to Indiana, then I went to Dallas and to D.C. Um, it, re it really forces you to kind of question a lot of, your, uh, a lot of the ways that you understood the world. And I think that what I went through was about this big compared to what Zinkalashah went through, and that she was able to accomplish so much, um, I think is really a testament to her strength of character. This is one of my favorite photographs in the exhibition. Um, I've long been curious about the composition and trying to interpret what the photographer, Joseph Keeley, part of uh, the New York sort of fine art photography crowd, um, friends with Alfred Stieglitz, what, um, what is going on in your eye, in, 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 from what you see in this picture, in terms of uh, how she's presenting herself and how Joseph Keeley, the photographer, is interpreting her. Not that there's necessarily a right answer mm -hmm. to this question, but I just would be interested in, in what your observations about the composition is. Okay, well, I guess um, very quickly, um, I guess because I, I don't know the, uh, the actual details behind it, I, I didn't try to address it, but what I will say is this, is that uh, this is a, uh, she's a very beautiful woman, and, and this is a very... Uh, um, kind of a suggestive and subtly uh, seductive pose. And it's also uh, painting her or, or, or depicting her in um, attire that we might ascribe to uh, some sort of traditional Native American background. And there's a um, um, uh, kind of a trope, if you will, in American Indian imagery. It's called the Indian princess. And I wouldn't quite call this an Indian princess uh, picture, but I do think it is a... Um, uh, it's a very uh, kind of suggestive, sexualized picture of a beautiful Indian woman that's supposed to be alluring in some ways. And I think that the, um, one of the other things that's interesting, too, is this picture is taken one. Uh, 1898. Nine, okay, 1898. 22. 22. One of the other interesting things that's happening in the world of American Indian depictions is we're having a, a lot of uh, photographers taking pictures of, of Indians, not just um, out, in, um, out in the American West, but also back here in Washington, D.C. Artists had their studios. Uh, Michelle Delaney did a fantastic book on a woman named Gertrude Casebeer who photographed a lot of Buffalo Bills, Wild West Show Indians when they came to New York City. That's and my question. If there's a correlation there, because it was you know, during that same time period that she was in Casebeer's studio that was shown in these other Sioux men, some women, but mostly men were being photographed, and, and, and her opinions on that 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, although what, what I would say is that I think maybe the same thing that uh, Gertrude Casebeer found alluring about her subjects, I believe would, uh, that Keeley would have found alluring about this subject. There, there, there's something ex exotic in it and something kind of romantic. And, and it's also an Anglo clothing for Casebeer. She does, she does the Indian Oh, is she? And the, and the Anglo. Interesting. But you can understand what they saw in her and how they interpreted her, I'm kind of curious on the other side, how she saw herself and why she would have entered into this relationship with, a, well, with not just one photographer, but with, with several photographers mm -hmm. in New York City in a very kind of avant-garde mm -hmm. kind of community. That's, that's interesting because the first time I saw this photograph, um, knowing uh, in uh, some history about Zinkala Shah and knowing her writing, I thought this was really out of character for her, uh, really out of character. And I, um, I said, wow, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't know what to make of that pose. Um, remind me to get back to her clothing because, like I said, she does pose in Native American style attire. Actually, I'll just digress for a second. She um, testified in front of Congress um, about peyote use, and she was saying it was bad, it was uh, d damaging and detrimental, and Congress should prevent it. The Smithsonian had a very famous ethnologist named James Mooney, who uh, testified, I think, the day before, and he critiqued, um, this is kind of a strategy that you use when you're trying to win a, a case in a court, is you attack the other side's witnesses, you damage their credibility, and what Mooney did is he went in there and he attacked Zinkalasha. He said, hey, she's not wearing uh, traditional uh, Lakota or Dakota-style clothing. She's wearing clothing from other tribes. And furthermore, she hates peyote, but that fan she has in her hand, that's a peyote man's fan. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't even know that who, who, what her roots really are. Don't listen to her. Her credibility shot. Um, and so I don't know... Um, uh, if this is some attire that she just grabbed from the studio uh, to don to make her look the part, or whether it really is something that maybe uh, one of her relatives uh, gave her from uh, back in the reservation community. Um, so, uh, so anyways, th uh, this image depicting herself as a Lakota or a Dakota woman, I think is very much in, con uh, in consonance with who she is and how she wants to present herself. This pose, however, um, doesn't really seem to be it. And I guess what, if I had to say, uh, why is she doing this? Either it was because she was asked, or sometimes when, um, when you're in the city, you're living on the edge, um, she was a person of much interest, you sometimes feel like you can kind of step outside yourself and be uh, um, kind of cross boundaries that you wouldn't normally cross in your regular life. And maybe this is something that she was doing right then. Don't know for sure. Okay. So this is a Gertrude Casey. She herself. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Do you know if that's the entire image? Yes, it is. It's matted right to the edge of the image. So it's very small. It's also worth noting that it's platinum print, which is a form of photography that was preferred by fine art photographers. Those who were really trying to explore the creative possibilities of photography, the fine art possibilities. So and in fact, on the reverse of the photograph, there are instructions uh, to the person who's matting the picture about how this picture ought to be matted because this picture would have been displayed 
in camera club exhibitions in New York uh, at the turn of the century. Um, this photograph is, um, has got a, a wonderful exhibition history that goes back to 1898, but it, it's a small size picture for sure. Remember, of course, that if you wanted a large picture back at this time, you needed a, a large glass plate negative. A photograph such as this by Carlton Watkins, a mammoth plate image, we're talking about an 18 by 22 inch glass plate negative. Um, this requires a big camera. Most photographs at this time were really of that size. Yes, Mike. How much attention has she received from scholars? How much attention? Uh, 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 um, there are um, uh, a couple of journal articles on her. Uh, there's um, uh, a couple of collections in, uh, of her essays that Nebraska Press has, has published, and they, of course, have uh, like an editor's foreword uh, to them. And there's, there are a couple of uh, book chapters on her. Um, I don't know that she has her own full-length biography, it's a um, gap in the scholarly literature because, as mm -hmm. what you've just told us mm -hmm. this evening, it's a remarkable life mm -hmm. and an important life, and it speaks to so many issues that are so important in understanding the relationship between Native and non-Native peoples. It's mm -hmm. something that ought to be written, mm -hmm. for sure, but I, I don't believe that there is a full-life biography. Yeah, and I, and I think that one of her contemporaries, a man named uh, Charles uh, Eastman, who was a Dakota name, he was a Minnesota Sioux, um, uh, was Ohiesa, uh, meaning uh, the winner. And um, uh, he, he is the one who, who coined that phrase from the deep woods to civilization. It's the title of one of his books. He was stunningly prolific. I mean, he wrote book after book after book after book after book. Uh, Eastman um, went to a couple of different um, uh, um, uh, kind of primary and secondary schools, ultimate, uh, ultimately ended up getting his MD from Boston University. And he seems to be the, the one in this group of um, uh, uh, another term for these Indians who joined the Society of the American Indian are the Red Progressives. Um, they're kind of influenced by the American progressive movement in politics and because they're American Indian or Native American, they put the little adjective red in front of them, the Red Progressives. Um, but of the Red Progressives, Charles Eastman seems to get by far the most ink and by far the most attention, in part because he left uh, a pretty voluminous corpus of materials to study, and, and I think in part because his life is just so, so uh, exemplary, if you want, for uh, like an Indian success story, someone who went and got an education and went off and did you know, great, great things with it. I mean, being a doctor from Boston University, that's a pretty tough thing to be. But anyways, um, yeah, I, I, I wish there were more, but there's not. Was Bonin an American Indian or white or something else? Um, uh, he was, um, uh, to my knowledge, he was uh, Sioux. I don't know if he was three-quarters, half, full. I really don't. But yeah, he, um, he identified himself as such, and that's where she met him was back in the Yankton Reservation. And that was actually one of the points that she made here when she was in Washington, D.C., writing articles and all that. Is she wanted to make Americans aware that there were a lot of American Indians uh, fighting overseas for America um, in, uh, uh, in World War I. Her husband was one of them. Yes? The, the willingness to assimilate, the desire to assimilate, did that change from 
differ from tribe to tribe, or is that an individual decision? Well, uh, my guess is that it's pr- it's probably an individual decision, and I see that her and Charles Eastman, whom I mentioned earlier, they kind of follow the same trajectory, if you will, where they they love getting an education, they excel at getting an education. Eastman puts a much more positive spin on it than than Bonin does, but both of them. Um, one message that they want, that they really want to get across when they speak to people, when they give public speeches, when they write their essays, is that we really appreciate all that Anglo society has to offer. We think education's a great thing. Look at all the good we can do for our people because I've learned to become a doctor, for example. But the message that these two and others tried to get across was that, hey, don't dismiss Indian culture as worthless or degraded. It really had something important to offer. And so I think that they were kind of... Um, uh, getting both of those messages across that, yes, there are good things about the modern world that we like, but Indian life has good things too. And, um, and they're both pretty strong on that, and I think that they both kind of carried that through until their, until their dying day. They always felt that affinity for that life, and they always wanted other people to recognize that there was something of value there. Thank you very much. All right, well, thank you. <laughs>